Good morning, folks. Welcome to Cornerstone of Year. For the first time, can I welcome you? It is great to have you with us. And you join us, uh, I think, about the third, the fourth weekend, I think it is, the fourth weekend to a series that we're doing in the book of Exodus. If you've got a Bible, turn to the book of Exodus. That'll be great. If you haven't got a Bible, there should be one in front of you. If you'd like a Bible and you don't have one, there's not one in front of you, raise your hand, someone will give you one. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that one. That Bible is a gift from us to you. Now we're going through the book of Exodus, which is the story of God saving a people for himself to display his glory to, and then to display his glory through to the rest of the world. And for those who've just just joined us today, let me just bring you very quickly up to speed. God's people who have been promised to Abraham, an old man, he, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later on, he would, God said to him he would have a big family. And that family ended up moving to Egypt and they lived in peace for a number of years. But then one of the kings of Egypt, one of the pharaohs, forgotten, forgot how they got there and the blessing that they had been. And as a result, became fearful of these people. Because God's people were growing in number and they were multiplying. And this proud man became fearful. So therefore, does everything that he can to try and destroy God's people who were living in the land of Egypt. He went through a number of stages and went for full-on, full-blown genocide. Now, whilst this was all going on, a little baby was born. A little baby was born in the midst of this genocide that was occurring. And the way the Pharaoh went about it was that he told all the Egyptians to throw all the baby boys into the Nile, kill all the baby boys. But this little baby boy was born. His mom saved him, kept him quiet for three months. And then eventually she put him in a basket in the Nile and prayed that God would be with him. Now within God's hand, he ended up being part of the household of Pharaoh himself. And God had a plan for this baby, this baby boy called Moses. Moses grew up. Moses, throughout his life, came to realize that he was part of the people of God. He was a Hebrew, not an Egyptian. He ends up killing an Egyptian man. He then flees and builds a life for himself in a place called Midian. Gets a wife, has some children. And then last week we saw that God, whilst Moses was looking after the sheep, God met him. Met him in a bush that was burning but not being consumed, and he spoke to him. And last week, what we saw that Moses was being commissioned by God to go back to Egypt to save God's people. And what we saw as we looked through chapter 3, what we saw was the holiness of God, the transcendence of God, a God who knows, a God who hears, a God who is in control, and a God who promises to be with Moses. But during the interaction in chapter 3, and as we move into chapter 4, which is a continuation of that encounter, what we see is Moses throwing up objections, throwing up blockers. In chapter 3, he starts with, well, well, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Then he turns to God and goes, well, who are you? And what we'll see through chapter 4 is that Moses continues to throw up blockers, to raise objections to what God is calling him to do. So let's read verses 1 of chapter 4 through to verse 9. And we'll see the first objection in this chapter, which is, they will not believe me. Let's read it. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me. Or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. 
And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put it in his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So, that he, so he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. They won't believe me. They won't believe me. How will they believe me? Folks, at first glance, that objection seems plausible, doesn't it? It seems reasonable. The reason why we think that and we know that is because in chapter 2, verses 14, the last thing that he heard a Hebrew said to him was this, in, in chapter 2, verse 14, who made you a prince and judge over us? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? That was the last thing. He, how on earth are they going to believe that I have met God? How are they going to believe that it's you, God, who is sending me to save them? Plus the fact these people have been in bondage for 400 years. I know that they had the promises of God, but I'm sure the hope that they had was starting to wane. We get impatient after 40 minutes. 400 years. See, as far as Moses was concerned, unless the people believed that he had been with God, they were not going to listen to him. See, Moses was throwing up another blocker, another objection, despite the fact that God, in verse 18 of chapter 3, had already told him, they will listen to your voice. They will listen to you. Now, folks, Moses was either not listening to what God was saying, or he was straight out rejecting God's instructions and God's promises. I don't know about you, but... So often my rejections, and I'm sure your rejections, of God's instructions and God's promises for us can seem and sound reasonable. We can mask them with things like this. We need to be good stewards. We need to exercise wisdom. We need to not overdo it. Or even, we need to pray more about it. These things, folks, can seem reasonable, they can seem plausible, and even godly, but when God's instructions and God's promises are clear, it doesn't matter how reasonable our objections sound, the bottom line is this, it is a rejection of God. It's a rejection of His instruction, and it's a rejection of His promises. See, Moses didn't want more proof. Moses was looking for a way out. He was looking for a way out. Why would I want to go back there? I'm happy here. I'm comfortable. I've got a new life. I've got a top wife. There's no hassle. Everything is fine. Why would I want to go back? See, God's response to Moses' objection is not one of just casting him down. 
Thank God that he doesn't do that for us. <laughs> but actually, his objection is met with graciousness. Graciousness in the way that he is dealing with him, but also graciousness in the way that he's also dealing with Moses' doubt and Moses' fear. So God gives Moses three signs. Signs that will prove to the Hebrews that Moses had been with God, but also signs that would prove to Moses. And not only that, these were going to be signs that were also warnings to Egypt. You see the first sign there, verses 2 and 5. God says to him, what's that in your hand? Making reference to the staff in Moses' hand. Now, folks, don't miss this. God knew exactly what was in his hand, didn't he? Didn't have to ask him. But it was like, look, I'll give you a sign, Moses. I'll give you a sign. It was like, okay, Moses, you want a sign? Let me see. Let me see. Show me that stick. Give me that stick. And what he does is he tells Moses to throw it on the ground. And as he throws it on the ground, the staff turns into a serpent. And naturally, Moses runs. I don't know about you, I'm a bit like Indiana Jones. As soon as there's a snake, I'm off. And God says to him, no, take the snake by the tail. And the original language says he went tentatively. He was terrified. Take the snake by the tail. And as he does, it turns back into a staff. See, God is saying to Moses, look what I can do with a stick, Moses. And folks, at this point, that the staff of Moses becomes the rod of God. And we will see right through this book that it will be this staff that will be used to bring plagues, to bring water from rocks, to be the focal point for salvation as God leads his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness. But this particular sign of turning a staff into a snake and back again was also a warning to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian people because the symbol, the snake, the serpent was a symbol of Egyptian power. It was a national god. It was often associated with the Pharaohs and many of the Pharaohs would have had a serpent on their crown. It was a symbol of wisdom. It was a symbol of healing. And God in this sign was showing his authority to Moses. And that it was a warning to Egypt that the God of Israel, the God who will deliver his people, had authority over the Egyptian gods, over the Egyptian king, because he can turn a stick to a snake and back again. Sign number one. He then gives him another sign, sign number two, verses six to seven. Look, Moses, if I can do that with a stick, imagine what I can do with the hand that holds the stick. So he takes his hand, he tells him to put it in, in his cloak, he brings it out, and when he brings it out, his hand is leprous. He had leprosy on that hand. See, that le leprosy was rife in Egypt. It was a known infection that there was no cure for at all. But what it showed to Moses and what it would show to the Egyptian people that God could inflict judgment at any point, but also God could heal and bring comfort. See, God said to Moses, if they don't believe after the first sign, they may believe you after this one. And if they don't believe you after this one, this is what I want you to do. And this is the third sign, verses 4 to 8. Take, take, sorry, 7 to 8. Take some water from the Nile, pour it on the ground, and the water will turn to blood. See, it's interesting. As you read through, you will see that this sign was the first plague God inflicts on Egypt because Pharaoh's hard heart in not letting God's people go to serve him. And it was this sign 
that strikes right at the heart of Egyptian existence. See, the Nile, folks, was the life source for the whole kingdom and nation. I was in the Liverpool um, World Museum over half ten with my kids, and they've got a big display about Egypt. And then they've got a big map on the floor. And as you walk up the Nile, you can see during the Egyptian kingdom, throughout all the time that they were a superpower, as you walk up the Nile, wherever there was water, there were people put. Because they needed water. It was their source of life. So to threaten and destroy the Nile was to devastate Egypt itself. And this too, the Lord showed to Moses that he could even do that. These signs were given to Moses to authenticate before his people that he had been with God, but they were also signs that would be warnings for those and for him, Pharaoh, who would not let God's people go. Will they believe you, Moses? Now they will. Now they will. Folks, are you a sign hunter? Are you always looking for a sign? Are you looking for a sign to do something for God? Are all your decisions made on, we need a sign? Or are you somebody that is so on the hunt for signs, any sort of dream or any other sort of thought or any sort of incident must be a sign because it fits nicely with what I want? Are you a sign hunter? Do you look for the signs in everything in order for you to believe God and his promises? And maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. And maybe you're thinking, if God turned this mic stand into a snake and then back again to a mic stand, I will believe. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, to go, tell you, if you take me down to the River Mercy, Steve, and God turns the River Mercy into blood, for one, it'll be much cleaner, but for two, <laughs> then I'd believe. See, you're not on your own for generations, even during this time, and even during the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. People wanted signs to authenticate who he was, what he claimed, and what he had done. The truth is, folks, God has already given us a sign, a miraculous sign, and the sign is this, the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the sign. See, the Lord Jesus Christ, his life was ended on a wooden cross. And God placed on him all the ugliness of our sin. And he was crushed and punished in our place for us. And his blood was shed, not to to destroy a life source, but for that blood to be a life source as it washes the foulest of sinners clean through faith. And three days later, he rose again leaving the sign of the empty tune of God. And through, God, through his word, tells us if we believe that by faith, we have forgiveness of the sins of our past, peace in the present, and a living hope for the future. Folks, can I tell you this? The only sign that matters is the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Amen? But despite all these signs, Moses still throws down more objections. Verses 10 to 12. Let's read it. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servants, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, 
Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Folks, as we read through this, Moses is clutching at straws here. He's making excuses. Who am I? Who are you? They won't believe me. And now he is pointing out his own inability to speak. I'm not eloquent, he says. I've never been eloquent. It's another way of saying that I'm not a man of words. I'm slow to speech. Now, folks, let's not forget that God has already told him exactly what to say. He's already told him how people will respond And he's already told them that he will be with him. And also notice he clearly doesn't have a problem with talking to God, articulating his objections not to do what he wants them to do. Does he? Now folks, even though I think that this is about Moses trying to get out of the calling that God has on his life, Moses did have some issues with speaking. He did. Whether it was a speech impediment or an issue with speaking in public, maybe he was so worried that he hadn't spoke Egyptian for probably getting on to 40 years, he'd forgotten what that was and how to communicate in that way. Whatever it was, Moses recognized it as an inability or a disability that should have been enough for him to be excused from what God was asking him to do. See, Moses didn't think he was the right man because of his incapability. Now, there are a few things I want to highlight here. Firstly, it's good for us to note that this is not the only instance in the Bible where somebody thinks that they're incapable of speaking for God. If you look through Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, he is brought into the throne room of God, and straight away he recognizes that he is a man of unclean lips. How, How can I speak? How can I speak? I know what I've said, I know what I think, I know what I've done. How can I do this? And you see right at the beginning of his ministry with the the prophet Jeremiah, when God called him to speak to his people, his response is this, behold, I don't know how to speak, for I am only a youth. I'm only a youth. See, Isaiah, as you read through the Bible, saying, I'm not worthy. I'm unclean to speak. Jeremiah is saying, I'm too young. And Moses here is saying, I'm not capable. Now, God's response in verse 11 is one where he throws up some rhetorical questions. What does he say? He says this, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? See, God is saying to Moses, don't complain I know that I have made you exactly the way I wanted to make you. See, I'm the one who creates, and I'm the one who ordains. See, Moses is using his lack of ability to speak as an excuse for serving God. And in some way, he is complaining. He's saying, if I wasn't like this, then I could do it, but I can't. But God is saying to him in verse 11, this is how I've made you, Moses. I know you, Moses, and I also know who I am calling, so you can have confidence that I will be your mouth and teach you what to say. Folks, these rhetorical questions are good for us especially when faced with the temptation to highlight our inabilities 
and or our disabilities as reasons not to obey God. See, Moses' biggest issue wasn't a speech problem. His biggest issue was an obedience problem. See, folks, using our weaknesses and perceived inabilities as reasons not to be obedient to God is a complete misunderstanding of how God works and how He is glorified through us. See, remember, it was the Lord Jesus in the book of John who was asked the question by His disciples regarding a man that they saw who was blind and had been blind since birth. They turn to Jesus and they say this, was this man born blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? And Jesus said, no, neither. This man was born blind so that the word of God might be displayed in him. And it was the, the Apostle Paul, folks, who was the greatest evangelist that's ever lived, the greatest church planter that ever lived, who was accused of having no presence and not being able to speak by the very church that he planted and that he was caring for in Corinth. And it was him, the Apostle Paul, that said that his weakness, in his weakness, God is actually strong. And it was him who said, speaking of all of us as Christians, he says this, that we have this wonderful treasure, the beauty of the gospel, the glory of God in our lives, but each of us are like jars of clay. We crack. We're weak. We can be damaged. But God uses us, these jars of clay, to show that the power belongs to him and not to us. Folks, what we've got to see is that the message of the gospel, the message that God said was given to Moses to send and give to Pharaoh and give to God's people is more important than the person who shares it and the person who lives it out. The Bible tells us that in a mysterious way, the power of God is seen in the inadequacies and weaknesses of the people that he uses for his glory. This objection by Moses was an irrelevant objection because God can do it and God will do it. Folks, please let us not reject the instructions and promises of God to save him by highlighting our incapabilities, dare I say it, our disabilities, but rather save God where he has you and with what he has given you. To not save because you think you are incapable, which is often a conclusion we come to, because if we're honest, we do that because we compare ourselves with others, which is actually a complaint to God. If we're honest, what we're really saying is, God, if you made me more like them, or gave me their gifts, or their resources, or if I was born into that family, or I had that marriage, then I could save you. Then I'd be the right person. See, the problem is the cards that I've been dealt by you are not the right ones, so I can't do it. And for those of you who are disabled, in whatever form, I know this is hard to grasp, but God is in control over your situation. And Christian, if you're disabled, he promises that healing will come for all who have faith in Christ. He promises that. 
He doesn't promise that that healing will come in this life, but he does promise that he will heal when Jesus returns. Amen. In your life, your situation, please don't forget that you have been made, whatever your circumstances, you have been made for God's glory. And please don't think that your personal limitation somehow places a limit on God's ability to use you and to glorify himself in your life. Please don't. Folks, it's only over the last three weeks, three weeks, that God has highlighted to me the wonderful display of his glory in and through people who have disabilities. Three weeks ago, I received a phone call from a dear couple in our church. A dear, I'm going to name people, okay? Making Vera Ward. Vera's got rheumatoid arthritis, lots of problems. She's a disabled lady, and we pray that God will heal her, knowing that he will when he returns. I got a phone call from them. There are so many ways that they are unable to serve. But I got a phone call from them, Steve, you need to come round to ours because my living room is full of speakers. <laughs> See these new speakers? They just went and bought them for us. There are so many things that they can't do, but there are so many things that they can. And by God's grace, you guys at the side now can hear what's being said and sung. Praise the Lord. Give him the glory. Last week, I got, received a letter from George Osborne that was actually written to Claire Curry. And this letter was written to Claire Curry, and if those who don't know Claire, Claire's blind. This letter was a letter from a man named Elon who became a Christian at Hope Church Kensington, but came to hear about the Lord in and through ministry that Claire did with the homeless um, cafe run by the Liverpool City Mission. This guy has come to know the Lord Jesus. He had to go to prison. He is still in prison, and he writes to Claire, and he calls her Miss Claire, doesn't he, Claire? Miss Claire. Miss, Miss Claire, he writes to her, why, to tell her, to tell her how he's getting on and how he is using his opportunity in prison to share the good news of Jesus with all his inmates. There's a lady who's blind, who has to get taxis, who relies on so many people. What does she do? She goes and serves those who are homeless. She doesn't allow her disability, her incapability. There's so many things that Claire can't do, but the things that she can do, and by God's grace, somebody has come to know the Lord Jesus. Last week, last Saturday, I'm in my house. My parents live with us. We all live together. It's like the Christian answer to the Waltons. We're all together. <laughs> Anybody under the age of 40 is like, I'm going to clear you to all out. The Waltons were a big American family. They all live together, right? And Andrew Newell, sitting over there, big Andrew, comes to our house to visit my mum and dad. Not to visit me, highly offended. But anyway, came to visit my mum and dad. And then my mum left the room. And for those that don't know, my mum's disabled. She sits here in a wheelchair. She left the room, she goes out, and she comes out with a gift, all wrapped up for Andrew, and she just gives it to Andrew. And I'm like, I wonder what that is. And Andrew's like, so Andrew opens it up, and in this um, package, there's a, a frame, and in the frame, her mum had done a cross stitch. And what she'd done in the cross, she was the five solas, by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And just gives it as a gift to a 28-year-old man for his encouragement and his edification. I've got loads of stories about my, what my mum has done in and through her disabilities. When we were kids, we used to listen to this kids' tape called Kids' Praise. And Kids' Praise was about a salty, the singing songbook. 
he was a songbook, and he used to gather all kids, and they used to sing, sing stuff. If you've born into a Christian home, if you're over the age of 35, you'll know what I'm talking about. It was like the, the thing that we listened to as kids. They, songs like, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. That, that all came out of kids' praise. Anyway, they did a series of about 10 of them, and their favorite one in our house was number five, because all the kids go camping with Salty. And they all go off camping and they're singing songs and it's wonderful. And then overnight, they had to build their tents and live in their tents. And one of the kids was really scared. And then suddenly, walking into the tent is a firefly called Marty McFirefly. Now, the reason why he walks into the tent is because Marty McFirefly couldn't fly. So the kids get salty and say, Salty, we want to introduce you to Salty McFi- uh, to Marty McFirefly. And one of the kids whispers in his ear and says, he's disabled. And Marty McFirefly turns around and says, no, 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 my little friend. With God, I am more than able. I may not be able to fly, but I can glow. And when I glow, I give the glory all to God. Mum, Claire, Vera, others amongst you who are disabled, you may not be able to walk, you may not be able to see, you may not be able to serve, but you can glow. And when you glow, you give the glory all to God. There is no limit on God's ability to use you. And if the only thing you can do is stand or sit and wait, we should stand, sit, and wait for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. I know you. I know how I've made you. I know who I am calling. I am with you. Trust me. Save me with all that I have, with all that you have for the glory of God. But despite all this, Moses gives it one more go at throwing up a blocker. And he says, Lord, just send someone else. (laughs) Verses 13 to 16. Verse 12, now therefore go and I will be your mouth, teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You will speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be your mouth and with his mouth with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you in the, to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do all these signs. See, the anger of the Lord, it tells us he was kindled towards Moses because of his disobedience, because of his objections, because of his blockers. But rather than strike him down, we again see the patience and the grace of God, don't we? We do. Folks, later on in the series, later on towards the summer, we'll read in chapter 34 that God proclaims this about himself. He says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We have a God who is gracious and who is slow to anger. We see that this in this interaction with Moses. And throughout this whole encounter, we've seen his patience and his grace. So rather than write Moses off, rather than strike him down for his disobedience and his lack of trust, 
God is merciful, God is gracious, and God meets Moses, doesn't he? He meets him. But rather than sending someone else, he actually gives somebody to help Moses, Aaron, his brother. And he says, look, Aaron will hear from Moses. Moses, will, you will hear from me, and Aaron will speak. Now, we see the graciousness and the mercy of God, but also, let's not miss that later on in the story, there will be consequences for this. Because it will be Aaron who actually leads God's people astray in the incident of the golden calf. It'll be him who will be the figurehead of that. Folks, God is patient and merciful. And at times he will give us what we want. At times he will give us what we pray for, even if our prayers are to do something different to what he has asked us to do, or in a way that he has intended. But it is good for us to be aware that these granted requests may come with consequences or even missed blessing because we have asked for an alternative way to what God intends, which is never as good. It's never as good. What God intends is always best, however painful, however difficult. And then even though Moses has made excuses, put up blockers, and blatantly told God that he didn't want to go, God wasn't going to take no for an answer, was he? <laughs> no way. He says, verse 17, take your staff in your hand, go and show the signs. See, God got his man. So Moses, verses 18 to 23, packs up with permission of his father-in-law, he takes his wife and his sons with a clear understanding that he had to do the miracles before Pharaoh, whose heart would be hardened despite the message of grave consequences for his son, his family, and his country, because he failed, he will fail to let God's firstborn son, Israel, go. Verses 22 and 23. It tells us there that he meets Aaron on the way, he shares everything that God has told him, and together they arrive in Egypt, they meet with the elders of God people, they heard what he said, they saw the signs, and along with the people of, along with God's people, everybody believed, they bowed down and worshiped God because God had visited them in their affliction. They, they, they believed and they heard just like God had said. Now folks, we could end it there, but there's this little unusual episode that happens when, fair, when, when Moses leaves his family in Midian and goes to Egypt. And I want us to look at that because that is vitally important. Read verses 24 and 26 with me, okay? <clears throat> at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. That's Moses. Then Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it, and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that Jesus said, that she said, sorry, a bridegroom of blood because of this circumcision. Okay. Unusual story, agreed? The fellow's like, yeah, agreed, agreed. The question is, what, what, what's going on here? What happens here? 
What I want us to see, folks, that what happens here is a matter of life and death for Moses. We see there, verse 24, the Lord was going to kill Moses, but it was the circumcision of his son and the placing of it on the feet of Moses that saved him. What's happening here? It's gone from God's graciousness and God's patience with Moses to him in verse 24 to suddenly he's going to kill him. Folks, let me remind you that the people of Israel who were slaves in Egypt are the promised people of God. They were, including Moses, the offspring of Abraham. Abraham, who was an old man, who had an old wife, who had no children, but God made a promise, a covenant with him that he would, would give him a family that would become a great nation, that they would be a blessing to the world, and that they would have a land of their own. And as part of the promise that God said, I will fulfill and I will do, as part of that promise that he makes to Abraham, he says this to him in Genesis 17. This is your side of the bargain. Read it with me. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, God says to Abraham. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's what God's people were holding on to while slaves. God has promised us to give us a land. God says, I'm going to do this for you. But this is what you need to do, Abraham, verses 9 to 14 of chapter 17. And God said to him, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The circumcision of the flesh was a sign of the people's faith in God's promise to them. It was also a sign that they identified with God, identified with his promises, and identified with his people. And those who were not circumcised had broken that covenant, were strangers to the promises of God, and would be cut off. See, belief in the promises made to God's people and the sign of circumcision declared that they were righteous, declared that they were right before a holy God. Here we see with Moses the weight and the seriousness of not being right with God. See, two issues are apparent. One, that Moses' son had not been circumcised, and quite possibly, Moses had not been circumcised. Moses, or his son, 
did not have the sign of the covenant. And according to Genesis 17, he had broken the covenant and he was to be cut off. Moses was under the wrath and the judgment of God. Moses had broken the covenant of God. He was not right before him. Despite being born a Hebrew, he was not part of the people of promise. Moses, verse 23, had just been told to warn Pharaoh that his firstborn son may be killed. But Moses' own son had not been circumcised. And this was a non-negotiable. It was a non-negotiable mark of being a son of God, to be a child of God. This was the mark that guaranteed that you were part of God's people. Moses had neglected that commandment. And now stands outside of this sonship, stands outside of this grace, stands outside of this mercy. He actually stands under the judgment of God. So again, it's a woman, his wife, Zipporah, sees what's going on, quickly gets a flint knife, circumcises her son, and places the foreskin of her son on the feet of Moses, covering Moses. So the Lord relents and does not kill him. Folks, it is the blood of the Son that covers Moses, that deflects the judgments of God. See, this is a picture of what is to come with God's people when the blood of the Passover lamb covers their door, which deflects the judgments of God. But it is also a foreshadow of the blood of the Son of God, Jesus, whose blood covers those who are under the judgment of God because of our sin and our rejection of him. And Jesus is not only the Passover lamb, he is also the bridegroom of blood to us. We are right with God and right with him because of what he has done for us. Moses was right before God because the shed blood of his son. We are now right before God because of the shed blood of his son. Amen? Amen. Two things as we lead to the table. If you are not a Christian here this morning, please see the patience of God in this story. He is patient. He actually moves, doesn't he, towards Moses, even though it's not best for him, but he moves to make it easier. But please see that there comes a point because of Moses' rejection when no explaining or questioning or objection or waiting can change what is ultimately going to happen. God was going to kill Moses. Because God is a holy God. And he cannot not tolerate sin. And only the shedding of his son's blood could save him. If you're not a Christian, folks, God will ask. God will offer. God will pursue. God will call you to turn to him. But one day it will be too late. And the judgment of God that is on you because of your sin will be exercised fully because of your rejection of him. I heard you this morning. If you're not a Christian, see that God has given his own son 
to save you. And Jesus' blood can and will cover you if you confess your sin and repent and turn back to him, believing by faith. Otherwise, nothing will save you from his judgment. Nothing. Folks, hear God as he speaks. Hear God as he calls. I offered you complete forgiveness of sin. I offered to create a new heart within. I offered you Jesus as my very own son. But you would not believe in the works he had done. You heard my offer, you heard my plea, you heard my voice saying, come unto me, but you were too busy, you hadn't the time, and so you refused that great offer of mine. Life, it is short. You know it so well. I told you of death, of judgment, of hell, but now you are here. You've met your last date. My offer is gone. And now it's too late. But for the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, it is too late for all of us. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Amen. And for those of you who are Christians this morning, Moses was not fit for the service of God because he wasn't right with God. Not because he couldn't speak, but because he wasn't right with him. What is in your heart this morning? What's in your thinking that is causing objections and blockers to obedience, to serve, to give your whole life for his glory? What is it? Bring them to him. Some of those things are things that we've done, things that we carry, things that we think, but some of those things are things that other people have done that have affected others and damaged us. Hear the patience and the grace and the long-suffering and the steadfast love of God that he has shown on you by his power, even in the midst of pain, show that to others. So let us confess our sin. Let us repent. And as we eat and as we drink, let us be reminded of the cost of God to declare us as his children. You may have objections for all of this. You may have objections for anything that I've said. That's fine. But what's not fine is if you are not right with God, the judgment is upon you. But God graciously says, come to me. Because there is a fountain that is filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. They will lose all, all, every single bit of the guilty stains. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you and praise you for who you are and what you've done for us. We praise and thank you that you are a gracious, patient, loving God. And Father, even with the heroes of the Bible that we see here with Moses, you're patient with him even in the midst of his objections and his rejections and his disabilities and his incapabilities, but you use him for your glory. We thank you that you do that for us. Forgive us for throwing up blockers. Forgive us for being people who object. 
Help us to live as those who are your children, knowing the grace and the mercy of God. And Father, now as we come to the table, as we see the bread and we eat the bread and we drink the wine and we drink the juice and we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us as we remember as his blood was shed for us, help us to see that it is through the breaking of flesh and the, and the spilled blood of Jesus that we are made right and we are washed clean. We thank you for that good news. And we pray that you bless this to us for your glory's sake. Amen. I would ask, if you are not a Christian, folks, please let this pass. If you have not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a meal that we get to do. And I, if you eat this and you're not a Christian, you've not put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't want you to do something that is hypocritical. But brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us that if we eat and drink in an unworthy manner, we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. That's a passage to us as Christians, not to non-believers. So if we have issues with brothers and sisters that are around us, bring them to the Lord Jesus. Forgive them. Ask for forgiveness regarding them. And then eat and drink as people whose conscience is washed clean, whose lives have been washed clean. But if you cannot let go of that, please do not take hold of this. But let us eat. Let us drink. Let us be thankful. Let us pray. Let us sing. Let us enjoy the wonderful meal that we get to remind us of what God has done for us in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's do that together now. what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant like a root out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their inequities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressions. He was numbered with us. He was numbered with us. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The Lord Jesus numbered himself with us, took what we deserve, rose from the dead, and now is at the right hand of God, interceding, representing. He's still numbered with us, amen? Still numbered, we need him. We need him in every moment of the day in every second, in every relationship, in every circumstance, in whatever world issue that is going on, there is no one else that we need more than him who conquered the grave. We need him. Our precious Savior, our precious Lord, our precious shepherd, our precious friend, our mighty King Jesus. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's pray to him in this song and then let's declare praises to him for his glory. Amen.